we are going to be in Matthew 5 again. Um, this morning, we're going to explore uh, two more teachings of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And um, they both cast this radical vision of the upside-down kingdom of heaven. And specifically, how people who desire to live out this kingdom vision, how they're supposed to speak and how they're supposed to act as kingdom agents. Um, and I, I know we just prayed, but I do want to take one moment to just um, ask the Spirit to kind of help open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what he has for us in these script, the scripture this morning. So if you wouldn't mind, um, we're going to pray one more time and then we're going we're gonna to dive into the word. Father, calm our hearts this morning. There are many of us today who came um, this morning in just a flurry of busyness and also just a flurry of life. Um, Father, I want to um, just uh, pause for a moment and pray for um, some brothers and sisters in Christ who got word this morning that... Um, Somebody in their community, a, a pastor's wife, she, she, she passed away. And there is a body that is deeply hurting right now. You know intimately the family that has been left behind and the community that has surrounded this family. And I just ask that your spirit would minister them, to them in a very deep way today. that the church is bigger than four walls and names and locations. It is um, those who have banded together to follow you and to seek you. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters who are hurting this morning. And Spirit, as we dive into Scripture, I just ask that there, if there's something that um, needs to be addressed in our own hearts, or if there's encouragement that you have for us this morning, that um, we would be receptive to hear your voice this morning. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're first, we're gonna, I'm going to break this up. Kind of, we've got two sections we're covering today. First, we're going to start with uh, Matthew 5, if you want to kind of look, we're, we're going to focus on verses 33 through 37. I'm going to read it one more time for you, and um, it, it'll also be up on the screens, I think, if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, but I'm going to read it one more time. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything else beyond this comes from the evil one. When you look at the convenient headers in your Bible, um, you see that this title, this section is titled Oaths. Um, and if you're like me, probably immediately images of a person in a courtroom placing one hand on the Bible and like, swearing to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, kind of come to our mind. 
And it's true that the um, followers of Jesus, when they were hearing Jesus preach this sermon, um, the, that image probably came to their mind as well. It was common um, that it was connected to courtroom and judicial proceedings. But this idea of oaths was also very commonplace in everyday society, in everyday interactions. Um, the practice of swearing an oath, what that was, it was basically to like invoke or um, call upon a third party, even a third party as um, like a sacred authority like God, to bear witness to the truthfulness of what you were saying. Um, and we see examples of this all throughout scripture. Um, Ruth swears to Naomi to not abandon her after her, um, her son, which was Ruth's husband, passed away. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth 1.17. Um, King Solomon uh, he swears a similar oath of, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, um, when he was in the midst of some family conflict with his brother and mother. Um, it probably sounded more like, I swear I'm going to deal with this when I get home. It's probably more like the swear that he used. But in ancient times, it was commonplace to swear an oath in order to prove that you were honest and you were being sincere about what you were saying. However, in Leviticus, we read that the Israelites were instructed to um, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord your God. The sacredness of God's name basically meant you couldn't use his name in an actual oath. You probably wouldn't hear an Israelite teenager yell at their parents, I swear to God, I'll empty the trash when I get home. Like, that's not something that they would do. They wouldn't actually use God's name. It might sound more like, I swear by heaven, I'll empty the trash when I get home. They would act, what they would do is they would actually take words and they would substitute it for God's name. And then they kind of went a step further and they um, ordered these substitutions as if to provide this like scale of magnitude you could swear by different things in order to show how serious you actually were. Um, in this particular passage, we see four substitutions. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and head. If you were really serious, you probably would swear by something that was more on the um, heaven or earth side of the scale. Or maybe if you wanted to swear by something a little less holy, you might swear by your head. And people would still take you somewhat seriously. Unfortunately, scaling oaths created this like pendulum of sincerity. Swearing by these words meant that you were very serious. Swearing by these words meant eh, you were a little bit more flexible. And in this moment of Jesus' teaching, he points out a serious problem with this system that they've created. God is in all things. His throne is in the heavens. The earth is his footstool. He dwells in the holy temples of Jerusalem. And he is the only one who knows the number of days. He breathed the breath of life into us as his image bearers. 
We can't remove him from our words and thus cover ourselves in case we don't actually want to do what we said we were going to do or we didn't mean actually what we said. We can't remove him. But again, this, this is just like a symptom. In reading these verses in context, in context with some of the other passages of scripture that we've been studying on murder, divorce, and adultery, what Jesus seems to be doing is taking a universally held idea of the Israelites and showing that their understanding of it was really symptomatic of a deeper heart issue that needed to be addressed. Remember, he uses this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you, to show that what he's done is he's come to fulfill what the law and prophets had initially set it up as righteousness for them to follow. What Jesus is really concerned about is our heart. Kingdom people are honest at heart. And so they don't need oaths. Oaths were set up to promise honesty. I swear to God, I'm telling the truth. Jesus says that kingdom people always tell the truth because they indwell the kingdom here and now. Honesty mattered then, and honesty matters now. To us, it, it might seem silly that people would swear by the hairs on their head in order to add more weight to what they were saying. I mean, it's not, certainly not something you've probably heard in common conversation this last week, am I right? But we do other things. When we discuss any of the current hot topic issues of our society today, sexual identity, politics, social justice, COVID. What are our conversations about these things? What do they sound like? The Israelites' pendulum of sincerity was scaling their oaths. Our pendulum of sincerity sounds a lot like verbal manipulation. And I know it, we probably wouldn't admit to participating in something that sounds as serious as verbal manipulation. I mean, that sounds scary. We probably scale it down by calling it something a little more or a little less offensive, like spin. It's all about how you spin something, right? If you spin something just the right way, you might be able to get away with what it is you actually want. Someone uh, shared a story with me this last week about how they received an email as part of like a prayer, a group prayer, prayer chain. And it was a mom who was genuinely concerned and asking for prayer because her daughter, along with several hundred other campers, had been sent home from camp due to a COVID exposure by another camper at camp. But in fact, only about 120 campers had been sent home throughout the course of the week. It's subtle, but do you hear what the exaggeration is doing? Or um, have you ever heard the phrase, 
everyone's been saying blank. Was it really everyone? Or was it in actuality maybe just one or two people who said something? Probably somebody like our spouse or our best friend who already believes the same things that we believe. I hear this all the time. Everybody's saying. Do we ever engage in this kind of exaggeration that's, to be honest, designed to convince others to agree with the opinion that we hold? Do we spin our stories ever so slightly to give it added weight or legitimacy? Can you see the, and I swear by the heaven on earth and the throne of God's footstool that this is true? Jesus, Jesus is addressing us as well. Um, in Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy, he writes something that really struck me this week. I'm going to put it up here on the screen for you guys because I think it's really helpful to see it while I read it. He writes, Many people make a good living doing nothing but uttering yeses that are not really yeses at all and noes that are not noes. In social and political contexts, we now call them spin doctors. The inherent wrongness of such projects makes Jesus simply say, don't do it. Swearing, or this song and dance in general, does not respect those upon whom it's directed. As God's free creatures, people are to be left to make their decisions without coercion or manipulation. Hence, let your affirmation be just an affirmation, a yes, and your denial be just a denial, a no. Anything more than this comes from evil, the evil intent to get one's way by verbal manipulation of the thoughts and choices of others. And what I think Willard is saying here is that when I am not sincere and honest in my conversation with others, it not only reveals like the manipulative motive that exists inside my heart, but it also shows a lack of value that I carry for the other person. I don't actually view the other person that I'm talking to as a fellow image bearer created with divine intelligence. And I rob them of the ability to make choices and discern truth for themselves. Jesus reminds us that a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the mouth, the heart speaks. I often find myself scaling words when I want others to believe what I want them to believe or to do what I want them to do. And I often scale my words when I want to retaliate against someone. And so it makes sense that Jesus would continue with this next section in our Bible that's titled, conveniently for us, Eye for Eye. So let's take a look at the next section. This is now Matthew 5, verse 38. 
you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, when we find ourselves passionate about a particular belief or cause or idea, it can be really tempting for us to spin our words in just such a way to manipulate them, to join in in this passion that we have. We are appealing to their sense of justice, right? Doesn't this seem like a just cause? Don't you think this is right? Because at the core of human interaction is this innate desire for justice. And so once again, we see Jesus use this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he does this to show that how justice in the kingdom looks radically different than how we've experienced justice here on earth. What Jesus means by justice is the participation with God in seeing shalom, which is the wholeness and peace and restoration of God, to come to the deeply broken things of this world caused by our humanity's sin. And I'm going to say this one more time because I really feel like it's important that what Jesus means by justice Maybe not what I mean by justice, but what Jesus means by justice. It's participation with God in seeing shalom, which is the wholeness and peace and restoration of God, come to the deeply broken things of this world caused by our humanity's sin. Shalom. For the Israelites, as well as in our society today, there's this staple in this system of laws called commensurable punishment. And what this basically means is that punishments should be equal to the crime. This was expressed in Exodus 21, um, verse 23, it says, but if there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. It's really specific. It's got that. And in Leviticus 24, verse 19, says, If anyone injures their neighbor, they are to be injured in the same way. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. And these expressions of the law formed this foundation in society, what was called in Latin, lex talionis, or translated, the law of retribution. And there are two fundamentals to lex talionis. One, required retribution, and two, equal retribution. 
If you injured your neighbor, you would incur injury as well. If you stole from your neighbor, you would lose possession also. And at face value, it, it seems like an appropriate form of justice. It was designed actually to curb violence and prevent vengeance from getting out of control. But again, Jesus addresses this idea of lex talionis to explain how justice in the kingdom looks really different than justice of this world. You see, under Mosaic law and lex talionis, retribution wasn't an option. It was required. And you actually were instructed to show no pity. It assumes that um, in order to establish safety and stability in society, that could only be maintained under the fear of punishment for what awaited you if you broke the rules. And what a person has done can only be undone by doing the same wrong back to the person and therefore balancing the social scale of justice. And so therefore, hardness of heart was a natural byproduct of this system and probably even a necessity in order to maintain it. But Jesus, Jesus reveals that it is grace and love and forgiveness that actually creates a society as whole. Jesus ends this mosaic order to show no pity and instead commands his followers to be merciful. Jesus says you don't have to use violence to resist evil. And in this particular passage, we get four examples of Jesus' kingdom vision for nonviolence. So let's break it down. Um, in verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Um, in my mind, I, um, I see this image of Bugs Bunny as he um, pulls um, each finger off of his white-handed glove and then like comedically slaps Yosemite Sam across the face. We just introduced Looney Tunes to our children. This is what I see. And we make light of it in cartoons because it's not something that we see much in our society today. But for the Israelites, the backhanded slap was very real. And it was a gross insult to the dignity of a person. It would definitely incite a physical response back from somebody if you were backhanded slapped. When our dignity is attacked, Jesus commands us to turn the other cheek also. And he models this for us in Matthew 26 when he's arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin. He's interrogated by them. And in verse 67, it says, they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Jesus doesn't return violence with violence, but simply continues in his mission of bringing his kingdom here on earth. Next, we have this example in verse 40. 
it says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your cloak as well. I conveniently dressed appropriately for you this morning as a visual. See, males wore two levels of clothing, um, an outer coat and an inner garment, usually another shirt or a coat. And um, a person's robe, so this guy right here, was designed as both as an obvious cover for the elements, rain, dust, storm, the obvious things. Um, and it was also used as a sleeping blanket. Wad it up. There's your pillow. Okay? And because of this, it was actually prohibited for anybody to take a person's coat from them for any period of time. So you could sue a person and take what was legal, their shirt, their inner garment. But Jesus goes a step further and commands his followers to give over their robe also, thus relinquishing their rights to standard comfort and provision. Later, we see Jesus giving up his right to comfort and safety when he willingly gives himself over to the Romans to be crucified. Matthew 27, 35, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Third example, verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. As an occupied people, this particular charge of Jesus would have been really hard for them to swallow. At the time, Roman soldiers could actually require occupied people to work in aid of the Roman military. And it's not hard to imagine probably how the Israelites felt about this. Um, the Zealots, which were a political sect of Jewish people who sought to kick out the Romans from their land, their response to Roman abuses of power like this were typically violent. They favored armed retaliation as the most effective means to fight back against the injustices that had been caused against the Jewish people. And they envisioned this would be the approach of the Messiah as well. But Jesus, Jesus commands his followers that faced with, when faced with Roman oppressive demands like this, instead of responding with violent outrage, go the extra mile to help. Jesus contends that aggression loses its power, not when it's met by greater aggression, but when it's met by radical go above and beyond humility. And he embodies this upside down kingdom vision when he enters into Jerusalem, not as the military power that the zealots have wanted, riding on this big white stag and preceding a huge vast Israelite army, but rather riding humbly on a borrowed mule with a band of followers made up of misfits, outcasts, and outsiders. Finally, in verse 42, we get this last example. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
Jesus urges his followers to give to those who ask and don't expect payment in return. In doing this, you actually can avoid the whole world of courts and retributions altogether. And once again, Jesus subverts this current system of retribution by creating a system instead of grace and compassion and love founded on a culture of generosity. But there's tension in this teaching. And as followers of Jesus, we wrestle with this, don't we? Because on one hand, our culture tells us to fight back. Don't let anyone walk on you. If someone hits you, hit him back. Teach him a lesson. But this isn't how the follower of Jesus is supposed to respond. Remember Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was watching the corruption of Jesus' arrest unfold before his very eyes, and he fought back. And he cut off the ear of the Roman soldier. Jesus' response to Peter is the same one he has for us today. Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And then Jesus goes above and beyond, and he actually picks up the ear of the Roman soldier, the guy who's there to lead him away to be crucified. And he heals him. This is the kingdom. And it's hard because on the other hand, we sometimes equate Jesus' form of nonviolent resistance as this call to be like a passive punching bag. But Jesus' call to actively live out the kingdom here and now doesn't mean quietism or withdrawal or inactivity. When we see injustice, we are not to be disinterested or disengaged. We are to be rooted in love and peacemaking. We are to be actively doing the hard work of seeking peace. Kingdom justice isn't passive. It's actually very active. Turn the other cheek. Surrender more clothing. Go the extra mile. Lend and don't charge interest or expect repayment. These are all actions. And as we listen to Jesus' words, many of us might find ourselves in the same place as the Israelites who were also hearing these words. There are places in our hearts where the cry of injustice is still very real. Places where pain and hurt have been caused because you've been doing the work of the kingdom. Jesus sees you. And he reminds us this morning that blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to end with this final thought. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Um, oh, wait, no, I don't have it up on the screen. Maybe I don't. I'll just say it really slowly because it's really important. There's this Japanese proverb that I heard this week, and it says, it is better to light a candle than curse the darkness. It is better to light a candle than curse the darkness. Jesus exposed the dark of this world, the evil of this world. And how did he do it? By being light. Friends, let us continue following Jesus' example of being kingdom agents whose speech and actions are marked by honesty and generosity and compassion and forgiveness. This is no small task. It's why it's radical. And I'd like to spend a few moments asking the Spirit to take a deep examination of our hearts today. What are the areas of our hearts that need to be healed from the pain and hurt of experienced injustice? That's the side of the Israelites that you see yourself sitting in this morning. And also, what are the areas of our hearts that need to be transformed so that our speech and our actions reflect the light and love of Jesus that this world so desperately needs to see? I'm going to pray... And I'm just going to give us a few moments to sit. The band will come up and they'll start strumming and we'll continue with the next part of our morning. But um, yeah, I'm going to let the Spirit do what he does. So, Father, you see each and every person sitting in this room. You see those who need to be encouraged because maybe it's been really hard. Doing kingdom work is really hard. You call it, you call us to it. And what's beautiful about it is you don't leave us alone to do it. You've sent us your spirit. And so, spirit, come and encourage the hearts of those who need to be encouraged to continue doing the work. And, Father, for those of us who maybe hurt ourselves you in some of these examples where our speech has not been always marked by honesty, spirit, would you come Fill our hearts. Remove the stuff that's in our hearts that's coming out of our mouth. Maybe it's a lack of trust that's been in there. And so we have to then spin our words so that people um, will, will believe what we want them to believe or, or say what we want them to say because we don't trust that you are still able to do it no matter what we say. 
So Father, come. Spirit, come. I'm just going to end by saying if any if anybody in here like the spirit prompts something in your heart and you need prayer this morning um, we'll have some people in our in our launch team and, and our and Jackie and our pastors in the back um, available if you need prayer this morning